Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, how do you deal with objections to the Christian faith? I mean, it is Christmas time. You might get some objections from your relatives around the Christmas dinner table about Christianity. How do you deal with them? How do you deal with objections like, well, God does immoral things in the Old Testament? Or God doesn't exist because there's too much evil in the world. Or there's no good reason for God to allow this particular evil. If there was a good God, he would have prevented that. Or Christians are hypocrites and they've done so much evil. How could you believe in Christianity? Or the Bible denies LGBTQ rights, so that can't be correct. Or Jesus is just too exclusive. He says he's the only way. And there is no one objective only way. There's not one truth. Or if God exists, why doesn't he just show up and let us know he's, he exists? I mean, he, if he's out there, why is he hiding? He doesn't seem to show himself enough. And by the way, there's just not enough evidence for God. Or there's not enough evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. How do you deal with these objections? Well, you don't have to address each one of these objections uh, and provide a complete refutation of them. The first thing you want to do is you want to question the assumptions behind the objection. And that's what I want to do today, because every objection, excuse me, every objection assumes a standard beyond the person. The objection assumes a standard or it assumes that things should be different than they are. Every complaint charges that something is wrong, which means you must know the opposite of what's being wrong is right. Every time you complain about something, you're saying, well, this isn't right. So that assumes you know what is right. In fact, it's been put this way in philosophical terms. Every negation implies an affirmation. If I say that murder is wrong, in other words, it's not right, I might have, I have to have some idea of what is right to say that murder is not right. I have to say, well, allowing people to live is right. Every negation implies an affirmation. Every objection assumes a standard. Every complaint assumes something is wrong, which means you must know the opposite of that is right. So let's deal with these objections just very briefly. We can't go into a lot of detail on all of them. That would take several shows. But I think when you're having a conversation with someone, if they bring up an objection, if they state something that is against the Christian faith, you just need to ask a few questions. So let's do the first one I mentioned. God does immoral things in the Old Testament. Well, what question might you ask someone who says that? What do you mean by immoral? 
you're assuming a standard of good. And any deviation from that standard, which you're implying here, is immoral. What is the standard? Where do you get this standard of good to say that what God does in the Old Testament is morally wrong? Because if there is no God, nothing is morally wrong because nothing is objectively morally right. Everything's just a matter of opinion. So simply ask the question, what is your standard by which you judge something wrong? You must have in your mind a standard of rightness. Is that standard objective or is it just your opinion? Now, it, it's good. It's a good tactic for a non-believer to attack Christianity by saying that God does immoral things in the Old Testament, as long as that person is not an atheist. Because if you're an atheist, you don't have a moral standard. But you could say, rightfully, it's, it's, it's a defensible position to say, I, I do believe in God. I just think the God of the Bible is not the true God. Okay, you can, you can go down that road. In other words, you can say, I've got a standard, but the standard isn't the God of the Bible. It's another God who is the standard. Now, the problem is when you do that, you have to deal with all the evidence that shows the God of the Bible is the true God. What you can't do is just say, yeah, there's no God and the Bible's immoral, because if there is no God, nothing's immoral, because nothing's moral. Nothing's right. So when someone says God doesn't exist because there's too much evil, you want to say, what do you mean by evil? And as we've pointed out several times on this program, and we do in our books, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist and stealing from God, Evil can't exist unless good exists. And good can't exist in an objective way unless God exists, because evil is a lack in a good thing. Evil is like rust in a car. If you take all the rust out of a car, you get a better car. What happens if you take all the car out of the rust? You got a pinto. No, you got nothing. Evil is like cancer. You take all the cancer out of a good body, you got a better body. What happens if you take all the body out of the cancer? You got nothing. It doesn't exist on its own. Evil can only exist as a lack in a good thing. And goodness, in an objective way, can only exist if God exists. It's not just my opinion that, say, loving people is good and murdering them is evil. It's really good to love people and really wrong to murder. Why? Because there's a standard beyond just my opinion. It's God's nature. Now, when somebody says there's no good reason for God to allow this particular evil, you might want to ask them, well, how do you know that? Are you saying that you have enough knowledge to say that God might not have a good reason, reason for allowing a particular evil to occur? How, do you, how could you possibly have that knowledge? You would, you would have to be omniscient like God to say, oh, this evil that just happened that I'm complaining about there's no way this evil could bring good down the line. You can't say that. You don't have enough knowledge. There's something known as the ripple effect, where every event ripples forward to affect trillions of other events and millions or billions of people. And you just can't say that, well, say this baby dying now, while it is an evil, has no good coming from it. You don't know that. Could be that this baby dying now sets a ripple forward into the future that 500 years from now brings a great evangelist who saves millions of people. You can't know that there's no good reason for evil. In fact, I remember I was at Michigan State many years ago and an atheist asked a question. He was the first guy to ask a question. I knew he was an atheist because he sat through the entire two-hour presentation with a 
with a real stern look on his face. He didn't laugh at any of my jokes. And I have some decent jokes. At least if you're a dad, you'll appreciate dad jokes. They're in the presentation. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Anyway, as soon as I asked for questions, his hand went up and I said, yes, sir. And he said, if there is a good God, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? And I said, sir, that is an excellent question. Maybe because if he did, he might start with you and me because we do evil every day. God allows evil because he wants us to have the ability to love, which requires free choice. The problem is we can use our free choice to do evil. And God, realizing that he wants a moral universe, has given us free will so we can love. The problem is we can also do evil. In fact, think about it this way, ladies and gentlemen. If God were to stop evil at midnight tonight, would you still be alive at 1201? I wouldn't. No. God ultimately will quarantine evil in a place called hell, but he doesn't end it by taking away free will. He ends it by respecting free will and putting the people who don't want to be saved from the evil they've done in a place called hell. It's quarantined ultimately. And the people that do accept the payment for their punishment, who do accept what Christ has done, they then, as their desire is, live with God forever in a place called heaven, which will be a new heaven and a new earth, ultimately. So always ask about the standard behind the question. If you can, if you can just ask that, or behind the objection, I could say, you're on your way to at least placing a seed of doubt in the person's assertion that something is wrong with the Christian worldview. All right, a lot more after the break. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist on the American Family Radio Network. A lot more. Don't go anywhere. We're back in just two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this on December 16th or 17th, I'm out in Phoenix, Arizona at the America Fest conference with my friend Charlie Kirk. He's heading the entire thing. Charlie's got a lot of great speakers coming in. Uh, he's got Tucker Carlson. He's got Candace Owens. He's got Greg Gutfeld. These are not all Christians, by the way, but these are people who generally are conservative or libertarian. He's got Laura Ingram. He's got Senator Josh Hawley. He's got uh, Newt Gingrich, Dennis Prager, Seth Dillon from the Babylon Bee, Matt Walsh, many others. I'll be speaking as well. If you uh, want to be a part of it, it's for four days, actually, the 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th. I'm speaking the morning of the 20th. Uh, just go to AMFEST, that's A-M-F-E-S-T dot com, and you'll see how you can register. You don't have to come for the whole four days, but... You might want to check out some of these great speakers and great exhibits they have there out there at America Fest in Phoenix, Arizona. Check it out. Go to amfest.com. All right. We're talking today about the fact that when people bring up objections to Christianity, the first thing you want to do, instead of trying to rebut everything they say, is just question the assumptions behind their objection. Because every objection assumes a standard. Every complaint assumes that something is wrong, but therefore something must be right. The opposite of that must be right. Every negation implies an affirmation. So before the break, we were talking about a couple of 
the objections that people have with regard to evil. They're assuming a standard outside themselves. Here's another one related to evil. Christians are hypocrites, and they have done much evil. You know what? You might agree with that. Christians are hypocrites. We have done a lot of evil. But I might ask them the same question. What do you mean by evil? By what standard are you saying something is good or bad? Again, you're, you're going to ultimately wind up back at God if you question them long enough. Uh, or you might say, why is, why is being a hypocrite wrong? <laughs> what standard do you have to say it's wrong? I mean, they're implying a standard even when they charge you with being a hypocrite. In fact, when they charge you with being a hypocrite, they're actually giving you evidence for God. Because why would being it be why would being a hypocrite, why would that be wrong unless there was a standard of right? And you might want to also ask them, as you agree with them that Christians are hypocrites, does any person or group perfectly perfectly live up to their own standards? Forget Christian standards, just their own standards. No, no one does. So what's your point? Are you saying because people act inconsistently? Uh, based on their beliefs, they don't act in accord with their beliefs. They sometimes contradict their beliefs by their behavior. Are you saying that because they do that, that their beliefs aren't necessarily true or they can't be true? Because if that's the case, then nobody, nobody could be right about anything if they don't perfectly live up to what they believe. And I love what, uh, what Dr. John Dixon said. We had John on the program about a year ago for his book, of Bullies and Saints. I've mentioned what he said before on the program. He puts it this way with regard to the hypocrite charge. He asked people, when somebody plays Beethoven poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Beethoven. You blame the player. So when someone plays, cr plays Christ poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Christ. You blame the Christian. And newsflash... Christianity is not Christians. Christianity is Jesus. He is our standard, not the behavior of Christians. Now, we hope that Christians have better behavior, but that behavior doesn't tell you whether or not Christianity is true. Christians could be the worst people in the world. And when I say worst, I'm implying a standard, notice. They could be the worst people in the world, and Jesus and Christianity could still be true. So you might want to bring that up. And as I've said before, on, in my debate with Christopher Hitchens, I agree with him that Christians are hypocrites. And I said, I'm a hypocrite. I can't live up to what Jesus told me to live up to. But if I could, I wouldn't need a Savior. If I was perfect, I wouldn't need Jesus. But I'm not perfect. That's why I need him. So you may want to bring that up. In fact, when people say I can't go to church, I always say, yeah, they say I can't go to church because there's too many hypocrites down there. I always say, come on down, pal. We got room for one more. We're all hypocrites. Whether you're a Christian or not, you don't live up to your standards. That proves nothing about whether or not the beliefs that you believe in are actually true. Now, again, I will admit that Christians have done many evil things, but here's another way of looking at it. What group has done the most good things? I could say that every group has done evil. Every group of people have done evil. But what group has done the most good things? In fact, I'm, I'm going to list a, 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 bunch of, uh, a bunch of what I consider to be good things, and I think most people would consider these things to be good things, uh, that one group of people have done. Let me just list them here. And as I list them, you tell me which group of of people have done all of these things. 
These people work to lower crime, suicide, abuse, abortion, homelessness, loneliness, hunger. They provide mental health counseling, substance abuse help, health care, education across all ages. They give assistance to military families. They have pregnancy care programs, adoption and orphan care, HIV AIDS care. They deal with pornography addiction to try and get people off that. They have personal and family counseling. They do community sports leagues. They have single parent help. They have auto care for single moms and widows. They have clothes closets for people. They give a lot of of clothes and, and, and supplies to the poor. They do weddings. They do funerals. They do seminars that strengthen marriages. They do men's retreats, women's retreats. They help uh, uh, persons with disabilities. They provide meals and food services for needy populations. They have mentorship programs for students, employment workshops, premarital counseling. They have fitness programs, indigenous care. They, they do home building. They build homeless shelters. They have personal coaching and personal training for the homeless and persons in recovery. They do camps for inner city and other needy youth. They do disaster relief, community uh, cleanup initiatives. They provide legal aid. aid. They, they have help for the sexually trafficked and women and children affected by pornography or prostitution. They have literacy programs. They have prison ministry and re-entry. They do well digging, care for seniors. They do drama, art, and music events. They founded orphanages, founded hospitals, founded universities. They founded modern science. They outlawed slavery, death games, child brides, child prostitution, infanticide, wives' property, and many other things. Which group of people has done all of this? If you said the government has done all of these things, you'd be wrong. Christians have done all these things. The church. And that's an incomplete list, by the way. What other group have... Has has any group of atheists done all of these things? Have any group of Muslims done all of these things? Hindus? Buddhists? New Agers? No, they haven't. They haven't done all these things. So while I will agree that the church has done a lot of evil, and again, evil presupposes a standard of good, which presupposes God, I don't think there's been any group of people throughout history who have done as much good. You say, modern science. You mentioned modern science, Frank. Are you sure that yeah, Christians started modern science? And still to this day, most Christians, or most Scientists that win Nobel Prizes are Christians. You say, well, isn't modern science against Christianity? No. Although that's just a myth that people have perpetrated in recent years. In fact, in the past 10 minutes of human history, that's, that's really what's come about is this idea that somehow modern science and Christianity are at odds. We've talked about that many times on this program. I don't want to go down that rabbit trail But I'm pointing out that actually modern science was founded by Christians. Universities were. It's just in the past 10 minutes now that universities have gone left. I mean, in the past, say, 60 or 70 years. But the first universities were founded by Christians more than 1,000 years ago. Hospitals founded by Christians. Orphanages. All the other things I mentioned. And many of the things I listed are being done right now at Local churches, and you will never hear the media covering any of this, will you? People get get their idea of Christianity from the media. You know, the media only covers two things, generally, when it comes to Christianity. How Christians vote, and when a scandal occurs. That's what they cover. 
When a Christian falls, well, by the way, a Christian falling, that's more evidence for God. Why? Well, because if a Christian does something immoral, it presupposes there's a standard of morality. If Christians do something evil, just like anybody else doing something evil, that presupposes they ought not do that. It presupposes a standard of good. Again, it presupposes God. Yet you will never get this general view of Christianity from just looking at the culture because the culture doesn't highlight all the good things that Christians do. It just wants to tear down Christianity by amplifying when Christians mess up. So you're not going to get the right view of Christianity from the media or the culture. Yes, the church has done a lot bad, but who has done equally good? The answer, no one, ladies and gentlemen, no one. Now, you also hear people objecting to Christianity because they say it's too exclusive, that Jesus says he's the only way. And then they'll say, well, you know, there is no objective truth. There is no truth. You know the intro to this program. Is that true? Of course there's objective truth. In fact, think about it this way. Every time you call out a lie, you're implying something is true. Lies require that truth be known and that truth is objective. You couldn't call somebody out on a lie unless you knew what truth was. Lies imply there's truth. And anytime you claim there is no objective truth, you're making an objective truth claim. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. So postmodernism and relativism are false, yet it permeates our society, these philosophies. They permeate our schools. Why would you ever go to school if there was no truth, if there was no objective truth? Are you just there to learn opinions? Of course there's truth. And any truth claim excludes its opposite. If Jesus say, says he's the only way, well, that excludes anybody who say, says Jesus isn't the only way. Well, you know, Islam does the same thing. Uh, the Quran says Islam is the only way. And anybody that disagrees with Islam isn't making it. The only question is, are these claims really true? Is it true that Jesus is the only way? I think it is. Why? Because there's no other way an infinitely just God can allow sinners like you and me into his kingdom unless he punishes somebody else. And who is the person he punishes? Jesus. Jesus is the innocent substitute. That way, Jesus can remain, or God can remain just and justify sinners. It's not an arbitrary claim when Jesus says, I'm the only way. It's just the nature of reality. It's the only way an infinitely just God can allow sinners like you and me to go unpunished. He punishes himself in our place. That's why he came into the world. That's what Christmas is a celebration of. Anyway, we got a lot more after the break. Don't go anywhere. I'm Frank Turek. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. Blessings this Christmas, ladies and gentlemen. We're coming up to the end of the year. Thank you for contributing to our $150,000 matching gift. Every dollar that you give, up to $150,000, will be doubled. Just go to crossexamine.org and click on Donate. We are 100% donor-funded. And 100% of your donations go to ministry, 0% to buildings. We are completely 
virtual. Uh, you don't come to us, we come to you. And when we go to college campus, ladies and gentlemen, we don't charge students a dime. When we go to a college campus, you're sending us there. So thank you for what you all you've done. Uh, and thank you for what you're going to help us do in 2023. Okay, today we are talking about the fact that every negation implies an affirmation. Anytime somebody objects to something, they're assuming something in their objection. They're assuming that the opposite of the situation they're objecting to is true or right. So let's go through more of these objections you might get as a Christian. Some will say, well, God hides. He doesn't show himself enough. Now, when someone says that, they're implying that God should show himself more. Well, why do they think that? You might ask, why do you think God should show himself more? In fact, what is the desired effect of God showing himself? What is God's goal? Does God just want us to intellectually know that he exists? Well, not according to the scriptures, because that doesn't, that's not enough. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, even the demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. They know that God exists better than we do, but they don't trust in him. You see, the desired effect is not just to believe intellectually that God exists. The desired effect is to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, to accept him as your Savior. And I don't know if you've noticed, but even when you read through the scriptures, while miracle displays are necessary to a certain extent to get people to realize that, say, Moses speaks for God, or Elijah and Elijah speaks for God, or Jesus and the apostles speak for God, many times these overt displays of miracle working don't have the desired effect. I mean, think just think about the Exodus. How many miracles did the Israelites witness uh, through the Exodus? Well, several. Yet Moses goes up on the mountains for, or up on the mountain for just a few extra days, and suddenly they're worshiping the golden calf. They're that fickle. They seem to forget all this. So it's not the case that God displaying himself will have the desired effect of actually getting someone to be not just someone who believes that God exists, but trusts in Jesus. Now, another question you might ask is, for God to exist, does God have to act as we might like him to act? Or put it another way, just because God doesn't operate as we limited creatures would like, and remember, we're creatures limited in time and location, we only see a tiny fraction of what's happening on earth. Just because the preferences of extremely limited creatures are not meant they're not met. Does that mean God doesn't exist? No, it would, just because our preferences aren't met doesn't mean God doesn't exist. In fact, it would be strange if an infinite God wasn't strange to us. It would be more strange if God agreed with us all the time. Actually, it's, it's impossible for God to agree with human beings on everything. Why? Because we didn't even agree with ourselves. How could God agree with everything that you believe is true and right? Because your neighbor doesn't believe everything you believe that's true and right. He might have other beliefs. So God couldn't agree with us all. So the truth is, having our preferences not met does nothing to refute the evidence that we do have that God exists. And as you know, we've talked about this so many times on the program. 
But we know that God exists by his effects. We know that creation is an effect, so we're reasoning back to a cause of creator. We know design is effect, so we're reasoning back to a cause of designer. We know the moral law written on our hearts is effect, so we reason back to a moral law giver. We know our ability to reason and these, these laws of logic, they're in effect, so we're reasoning back to a cause of mind. We know God exists by his effects. And all of those effects, also the effect, of course, of the resurrection, that's an effect. We're reasoning back to a cause God for that. We know that all these effects exist whether or not our preferences regarding God's hiddenness or non-hiddenness are met. Those, those those lines of evidence don't evaporate because my preferences about God being more overt aren't met. Now, as I say, we can't go into all of these objections here and unpack them all. We won't have time. I'm just pointing out that any objection assumes a standard. Any objection assumes some other knowledge that is often opposite of what the objector is saying. And so what you want to do is you want to reveal or expose those objections, or those assumptions, I should say. Now, we're going to talk more about the hiddenness of God on the upcoming December 27th midweek podcast. So if you want to delve more into that topic, you can. I'm just bringing up the fact that even the objection God doesn't show himself enough assumes a standard. It assumes something that might or might not be true. You ought to question it. How about the objection that someone says, the Bible doesn't recognize my rights? Now, typically, this is with the LGBTQ issue. Well, what standard are they assuming there? Well, first of all, you might ask this question, where do rights come from? Rights don't come from government. If they come from government, they're not rights, they're just preferences. Government is just a group of people getting together and saying, well, we're voting on this, and we think this is right. Well, they may or may not line up with God when they do that. But if there is no God, there are no rights. Everything, again, is just a matter of opinion. So you might ask them, where do rights come from? Why do you think you have rights? According to what standard do you think you have a right to do X, Y, or Z, whatever it is? You see, everyone who claims a right assumes a standard outside of themselves that everyone else is obligated to obey. Do you notice that? If I claim I have a right, to say health care, it's not a right, but someone says, I have a right to health care. Or if I say that, I'm assuming that you have to, in some way, be conscripted of some of your funds to give me health care. You're obligated to obey that. Well, where does that standard come from? And where do obligations come from? If there is no God, why do we have this sense of obligation that we ought to love our neighbor? That we ought to do good, depends on how you define good, where does good come from? Where does this come from? Where do obligations come from? Objective obligations, not just preferences. So you always want to say, you always want to ask for the standard. And you, you I'm sorry, it's, this is just the truth. You can't get rights to engage in certain sexual behaviors, particularly rights that aren't in accord with the design of the human body. You can't get it from natural law, and you, you can't get it from the traditional scriptures. Even Islam, you're not going to get the right to same-sex behavior. You're, not, you're certainly not going to get it from the Christian scriptures, and you're not going to get it from natural law, from the idea that there is a God up there, even if it's a generic God, 
In other words, he's not the Christian God, not, not the Muslim God. Natural rights come from the idea that there is a natural order to things. And obviously, men and women are made for one another. They're complementary in order to bring forth the next generation. So you don't, you don't get same-sex rights or LGBTQ rights from any sort of natural law or any sort of scripture. So if that's the case, where do you get rights from? These are just questions to ask. And where do obligations come from? How about this? You're going to get this, too. If, um, if you say anything negative about transgenderism, trans kids, trans kids will die. Now, what are the assumptions behind this? Well, number one, kids are valuable. Now, we all agree that kids are valuable, but why is that true? Why is life valuable if there is no God? And you might say, now, since children quite obviously are valuable... And everybody knows that, by the way. Some people just can't justify it because they have no standard beyond themselves. They just know it. They just can't justify it. But you might say, since children are valuable, why don't we care about them enough to wait until they are adults before making such irreversible and life-altering decisions? Would you join me in protecting these young, impressionable, impressionable kids? Who, by the way, about 80% of young people that have so-called gender dysphoria, they grow out of it by the time they're 18. So why would you ever suggest that a young person should get top surgery or take Lupron, a drug or a, a hormone, a, a drug that we've used to chemically castrate sex offenders? Why would we ever give this to children to somehow arrest puberty? Why would we do this when their problem probably will fix themselves or the problem will fix itself if we just wait till they're about 18. And when they say, when someone says trans kids will die if you say anything negative about transgenderism, you might ask them, how do you know the primary cause of someone's suicide is because they hear a contrary opinion? Do you think other factors might be involved? Yeah, I would think so. And it's... Is the cause of suicide really just disagreement? I mean, if a person is so fragile that they kill themselves over a contrary opinion, it is not the contrary opinion that is responsible, but the pre-existing mental state that needs treatment. I mean, if people are so fragile they can't hear a, 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 a contrary opinion without killing themselves, it's not the contrary opinion that's causing it. And I might also ask the question, do you forfeit your rights whenever somebody in society is mentally unstable? Are you required to shut up because some people might unreasonably, vastly overreact to your statement? And I might also ask the person, when you criticize Christianity, are you responsible when Christian kids kill themselves? Oh, that doesn't happen. Well, maybe it does. And if it doesn't, why doesn't it happen? Is it because maybe Christian kids don't have this mental instability that maybe other kids do? There's just so many questions to ask. There's so many assumptions behind the objection. You can't say anything negative about X because if you do say something negative about X, then people will kill themselves. That just, that's not good reasoning. There's so much more going on here. And it would negatively cut against them, too. Well, you can't say anything negative about Christianity then, because maybe some Christian kid's going to kill himself then. No, they would never buy that.
So ladies and gentlemen, there is so much more we're going to talk about in the next segment. Uh, we are going to talk about there's no evidence for God. You hear people say that all the time. What do you say to someone who says that? Suppose they say it over Christmas dinner. How are you going to respond? Don't go anywhere. We're back in just two minutes. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, on the American Family Radio Network. Don't go anywhere. See you in two. Ladies and gentlemen, now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, we can actually affect change on the issue of life and abortion. The question is, how do you convince people to be pro-life? Well, you can find out from whom I think is the top pro-life speaker in the country. His name is Scott Klusendorf, and beginning on January 16th, he's going to be teaching a course called How to Convince People to Be Pro-Life. And if you want to be a part of that course, and I know you should want to be a part of that course, go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, you'll see it there. And if you click on it soon, you'll get an early bird special. I think it may be 20% off if you sign up uh, really soon. I don't know the exact date that's cutting off, but you need to check on it now. How to Convince People to Be Pro-Life with Scott Klusendorf again. It starts January 16th, but you want to sign up now to get the 20% off. Check it at our website, crossexamine.org. Click on online courses. You'll see it there. Today, we are talking about the fact that when people make objections to Christianity, there's always an assumed standard behind the objection. And what you want to do is question that standard and see if they can justify the standard or the assumption that they have for their objection. So let's do another one. Sometimes people will say, there's no evidence for God. Now you could say, well, what evidence would you need, would you need to see in order to believe that God does exist? You could go down that road, but I actually think it might be more effective to say, why is there evidence for anything? In other words, why do we live in a world where we can use our three-pound brains to ascertain truths outside of our skulls and draw true and valid conclusions about the world out there? What kind of reality is orderly and produces minds that can know orderly reality? It would seem to me a being like God. I mean, why is the universe so orderly? Why do our minds work? Why can we describe reality through mathematics? Why? Why can we do any of these things? I mean, forget about just the evidence for God for a second. Why is there evidence for anything? Why can I put two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen together and get water? I got it yesterday. I'll get it today. I'll probably get it tomorrow. Why are things, and why can I know that? Why are things so orderly? because there's an orderer. This is best explained by a great mind. Our minds are best explained by a great mind. Remember, we know God by his effects. If reason is an effect, what must be the cause of reason? If our minds are an effect, what must be the cause of our minds? John Lennox famously asks atheist scientists, how do you do science? And they start to say, well, I got this equipment in my lab. He goes, no, 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 I don't mean how do you do science out there. How do you do science? And he points to his head. How do you do science in, 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 in your mind? And they say, oh, yeah, you mean in my mind? And actually, they catch themselves and they say, well, not my mind. How do I do science in my brain? Is that the question you're asking? Yes, that's a question I'm asking. 
Where did your brain come from? Well, usually the scientist will say, well, my brain is the result of a series of, of random processes that didn't have its end in mind. It was just put together by natural processes. And you know what Lennox says? And you trust it? I mean, why would you trust a brain that was put together without its end in mind? I mean, if a computer can be, could be put together without intelligence, would you trust anything it, it, it told you? Why would you? No, our very, our very ability to reason and ascertain truths outside of our skulls is evidence for a great mind. We're reasoning again from effect back to cause. How about if they say, well, Jesus didn't rise from the dead? You might ask them, well, how do you know that? Well, people don't rise from the dead. Well, of course they don't normally. They don't rise, to the, they don't rise from the dead by natural causes. Of course they don't. But could a supernatural cause raise Jesus from the dead? And if people did rise themselves from the dead or were risen from the dead by natural causes, then the miracle of the resurrection wouldn't be a miracle. I mean, if people popped up from the dead all the time, what would the resurrection of Christ mean to us? Nothing. We'd say, hey, this stuff happens all the time. So it wouldn't be any big deal to go to somebody and say, hey, Jesus rose from the dead to prove he was God. The guy would say, so what? Uncle George just rose from the dead two weeks ago. Now I got to give the inheritance back. No, it's got to be a rare event that doesn't happen by natural causes in order to get our attention and say, ah, this has got at work. By the way, you may have heard people say, oh, the disciples, they were... They were naive. They believed that these kinds of miracles could happen. No, they weren't naive. Their very reason they went from scared, scattered, skeptical disciples to a fearless missionary force that laid their lives down to propagate Christianity is the very fact that they didn't believe in miracles, that they could happen by natural causes. They didn't believe these things happened all the time. If they did believe they happened all the time, why would they go out and change their worldview completely? Because if it happened all the time, it'd be like, ho hum, this stuff happens all the time. No, they were just like us. They knew <laughs> that people don't come back from the dead naturally. So when Jesus did come back from the dead, they said, aha, this is God at work. You might also ask the question, when people say Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then how do you explain the evidence that, se that, that seems to point to the fact that he did? And one piece of evidence, as you know, is the fact that these people turned their lives around. These were the last people to believe that a man could claim to be God and rise from the dead. They didn't believe that as Jews, that a man could claim to be God. That was blasphemy. They didn't believe there would be a resurrection in the middle of time, only at the end of time. They didn't believe one guy could be a resurrected Messiah. That was against their worldview, not in accord with their worldview. So when it happened, they turned their lives around and they went to their death saying so. How do you explain the evidence that they did that? How do you explain the evidence for the empty tomb? How do you explain the evidence that the world was turned upside down by this supposed event. The best explanation is that it really happened. And as you know, the resurrection is not the greatest miracle in the Bible. The resurrection is easy compared to the greatest miracle in the Bible. The greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. 
that God created the heavens and the earth. If that verse is true, Genesis 1-1, every other verse is at least possible. And we cover all this in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. By the way, we cover some of this in the new book, Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. And parents, if you're looking for a fun way to get your kids more interested in God and Christianity, pick up Hollywood Heroes, it was written by myself and my son, who was also a seminary grad. We go through some of the top hero, uh, superhero movies and fantasy movies and show young people and even older people that they all point to Jesus. There are biblical life lessons in these stories. There are uh, parallels to Christianity in all of these stories, stories like or superheroes like Iron Man and Captain America and Batman and Star and uh, uh, Superman and Wonder Woman and movie franchises like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and even Harry Potter. Yeah, Harry Potter, you'd be surprised. So check all that out. It's a good book to get at Christmas time, especially if you're watching some of these movies. I know not all these movies are age appropriate, but if your kid is a little bit older, these movies can help you direct your kid toward Christianity. So check out the book, Hollywood Heroes. Last thing I want to say here uh, in this program is the fact that I've mentioned we have a $150,000 matching gift as we come to the end of the year. End of the year. That means that any money you give up to $150,000 will be doubled, ladies and gentlemen, because a group of donors have come together and said, we'll double it if they give. Now, you know, 100% of what we do is funded by you. When we go to a college campus, we don't charge students a dime because you are fueling us to go there. We also, all of the stuff you see online is fueled by you. We had 38 million YouTube views since January. We had over 100,000 new subscribers since January. Uh, the podcast has been downloaded 4.5 million times since January. And there's so many other uh, increases we've seen in social media. This is where the kids are, ladies and gentlemen. That's where we're going. We've had over seven, almost eight million views now on TikTok just in the past few months. So we're trying to reach kids and young people where they are, and you help us do that. So if you would really um, prayerfully consider giving at the end of the year, 100% uh, of your donations are going to go to ministry, 0% to buildings. We're completely virtual. You don't come to us. We come to you. Just go to crossexamine.org, click on donate. It's completely tax deductible. And let me just briefly mention a couple of testimonies that have come in. This is just a couple of, of scores of these testimonies. Patrick writes in and he says, hello, everyone. I just want to say I'm so thankful for cross-examined. It's 98% of the reason why I'm a Christian. 1% Jay Warner Wallace and 1% my own reasoning came up with the rest. I'm going to tell Jim about this. This is good. He said, if these resources weren't around, I'd most likely still be questioning. Thank you. And thank you for all those who support cross-examined. Andres writes in and he says, love your Instagram posts. I can honestly tell you at work, he says he works at a Northeastern liberal university. He says, with the change of leadership here and the extreme ideology of the left, I was starting even to doubt my own perspective. However, your response and pointing to scripture has allowed me to be calm and to start the process to find a better role and options in terms of, of a career. Another gentleman writes in, a former Hindu, says, Dr. Frank, I'm heavily influenced by you and your team. I've had a lot of doubt 
uh, on my faith, but God through you cleared away many of my doubts and encouraged me to share the gospel. In fact, he says he started as a Hindu who hated Christians and Christianity, discovered our ministry and is now a Christian, and he asks this. He says, I do face persecution sometimes. My friends left me, and so my relatives don't like me, but for Christ I count everything as rubbish, garbage, he says, so that I could gain Christ. Now I'm not turning back. I am in a race for eternity. If God's will, I will soon be in full-time ministry after getting into college. Please pray for me so I could bring people of my own country from the darkness to ever to everlasting light. In fact, we're setting up websites in other languages in order to reach these people because of your donations, ladies and gentlemen. So thank you so much this year. Please go to crossexamine.org, click on donate. Again, 100% of your donations go to ministry, 0% to buildings, and it's matched up to $150,000. So thank you for all you've done this year. We're going to charge into 2023 with even more fuel because of you. Thank you. See you here next time. God bless.